When we open the Bible narrative, we don't get far in the narrative before we run into a crisis point. When the Lord closes the days of creation, he stamps it with the strong affirmation, and it was very good. And I don't know the time frame that happened between the close of the sixth day and what takes place in the opening of Genesis chapter 3. Whether it's the next 24 hours, whether it were days that went by, weeks, we don't know. But at some point in time after the Lord rested, in verse 1 it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? If you look back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat you shall surely die. There's a lot about that conversation that would be worth thinking about, but that's not the tangent I'm chasing at this point. Notice, you have the simple affirmation of the Lord, the simple commandment that he gives to Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes along and asks the question, simply posing a doubt. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Eve answers, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Satan responds, you will not surely die, for God knows that the day you eat, your eyes will be open and you'll be like Implication, be wise like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both them were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. When the Lord appears to Adam and presents the prohibition to Adam and the permission to Adam, the permission to eat of any tree of the garden except one, that's the prohibition. Satan comes, as we just read the narrative, and offers something else to be considered. In fact, just turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 real quick. And you'll see a completion of this thought, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. As Satan deceived Eve by his craftiness. 
God presented one thing. Satan comes in and offers another choice. Now you have a complexity. As long as there was one single consideration, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. As long as that's the only consideration, there seems to be no problem. But Eve comes along, Adam comes, uh, Satan comes along and offers Eve another choice. Now you have a complexity. Question. From what we've read, was there something difficult to understand about that? Was Eve's problem she did not have the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew? And so she couldn't go back and she couldn't look up the words that she needed to look look up so she could define the words and understand the terms. Was there something difficult about do not eat of this tree? Was there something that she couldn't do? Was there something that the Lord asked her that was beyond her ability and possible expectation to perform? Do not eat. The Lord said, do not eat. Satan said, you go ahead. Here's the question. Who's she going to believe? In whom is she going to put her trust? That's the taproot of the problem. The problem is not she didn't understand God. The problem is not something this is something she couldn't cope with, she couldn't perform. The question is this. Who is she going to trust? As long as there was one single voice, that was simple. But now you have another voice. Now you have a complexity of voices. Here's the choice. Whose voice is she going to listen to? Here's what makes the difference. If she listens to God, she has everything to gain. If she listens to Satan, she has everything to lose. And she listens to Satan. And Adam takes. And now they're separated from God. And God puts them out of the garden. Puts protection before the openings that were there. So they cannot enter again. And a curse is pronounced. Strangest of all, she risks everything to listen to and put her trust in the adversary. The first story of humanity is a sad story. But Paul will say in the book of Romans that we've all sinned in the similitude of Adam. And the point about that is this. God also gives us single choices. But Satan comes in with other choices and makes it complex. And the question is then, who will we believe? In whom will we put our trust? That's the taproot 
of our relationship with God in who are we going to put our trust. As we continue the Bible narrative, you come into Egypt. The children of Israel are in bondage. It is a very challenging, stressful, adverse time for them. They're crying to God. And God hears their cry and sends one to deliver them. He goes into the court of Pharaoh and says, My Lord said, let my people go. Pharaoh responds, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? Wrong question of God. Because from henceforth to the end of the tenth plague, God is going to show Pharaoh who Jehovah is. Every one of the plagues are a contest to the polytheistic gods that populate the polytheism of Egypt, coming down to the only one that is in flesh and blood, Pharaoh himself, who is to be the protector of life and cannot even protect his own firstborn. And then Pharaoh cries out, get out of here now and take everything you want with you. Get out of here now. Now part of that was a translation of Ricky, I recognize but he's saying, go. And they leave. And then Pharaoh comes to his senses, as it were, for him, and begins to chase them. The Israelites see the Pharaoh and his army coming. They're, they're the mighty force of the day. Sees them coming. And immediately they begin to cry. And God enables Moses to part the waters of the Red Sea. And they walk through on dry land. Buried in the sea. Buried in Moses, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will say. They walk through the dry land. And then as Pharaoh and his armies begin to pursue them, the waters begin to close in on them. And all Pharaoh and his armies, they drown. The children of Israel have been witness to the mighty hand of God. In the performing of the plagues. It comes to the point where the Egyptians say, we can't do this. This is not magic. This is, this is something else. We don't have this power. And then they've seen their mighty deliverance by the Red Sea just parting and going over dry land. Listen, approximately 2 million people going through there. That doesn't happen in 30 minutes. But there was protection behind them. God would not let Pharaoh and his army come. There was a cloud behind. There was a pillar of fire behind. God's protecting them until they all make it through. And now the river closes in upon them and all Pharaoh's army drowns. Amazing. Would, would we choose, regardless of what he asked of us, if we were in that experience to believe in him? Or will we choose otherwise? Well, hold on. Because the choice is coming. 
they come to the base of Sinai. And Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights. The 30-day month, that's a month and 10 days that Moses is gone. Where's Moses? Don't know what happened to Moses. We saw Moses. Moses is not here. Remember, Moses is there, and they said to Moses, with the thunder and lightning in the mountain, hey, you speak to us. Don't let him speak to us anymore. You speak to us. You speak to him, and you tell us what he wants. This is scary stuff. And Moses disappears for 40 days and 40 nights. And then they say, we want a new God. And Aaron's complicit. They bring everything they can to make a golden calf. And they make a golden calf and call the golden calf God. Let's see. Was there a command somewhere in their history that said, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, nor worship any graven image. Was there something like that in their history that they might have just happened to have heard being said to them? No graven images. Jehovah God. No graven images. Who are we going to believe? Moses comes down. He sees what's happening. Here's the racket. Here's all the reveling. Here's all the things going on. And he sees what they've done. And throws down the tablets, disconsolate, takes the golden calf, grinds it up, puts it in their water, and makes them drink it. Why would a people, why would a people who've experienced what these Israelites have experienced possibly think they could make a God in their image and worship Him? Who are they going to believe? Well, we say, poor Moses, but hold on. Because the time comes, and as the children of Israel begin to cry, they're thirsty. In Numbers chapter 20, Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 12, read the discussion that the Lord has with Moses and what happens. Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 12. Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you should not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. If we're amazed about Eve... And we're a little amazed about the children of Israel. I mean, here's Moses. And God talked to him face to face. Other prophets, it was in riddles. But Moses was face to face. There was an openness between Moses and God. Moses is not struggling, is there a God? Moses is not struggling with some facts about God. 
But on this occasion, when he does not follow what God told him to do, notice God's statement. Because you did not believe me. Because you did not believe me. Facts about God are important. Understanding there is a God is important. But that wasn't Moses' problem. Moses' problem is, you didn't believe me. You didn't put your trust in me. And he wasn't allowed to complete the deliverance. His protege Joshua fulfilled that. He was able to see, but was not allowed to enter. Eve's crisis was a crisis of faith. The crisis of the Israelites was a crisis of faith. The crisis of Moses was a crisis of faith. In Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul will begin to preach, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul will begin to preach and he summarizes, gives a summary of everything that he's preached, he's going to put one umbrella over everything that he preached, listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. He says, you know how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You see those two elements that he says? He says, all my preaching can be encapsulated in two things, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What was the crisis before? The crisis was a crisis of faith. And Paul said, when I preached, I preached about faith in Jesus Christ and repentance toward God. That was a summation of all his preaching. Strong faith produces a strong spiritual life. Weak faith produces a weak spiritual life. Shipwrecked faith produces a destructive and disastrous life. Paul said, what I preached, I preached about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so we would all have strong spiritual lives. Eve's faith was weak. The Israelites, their faith was weak. Moses stumbled at a moment. All in a moment experienced a shipwreck. We want to build a faith that will not be shipwreck, but a faith that will anchor our lives to enable us to put with all confidence, regardless of what God asks us to do, our faith, our trust in Him. And so, it comes down to this. It's a choice for us. In who are we going to believe? In who are we going to put our trust? Let's work with that a couple of things. For example, when we come to Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to close with Abraham, so I'll put a peg there, I'll come back to him. I'm jumping around in my outline here. Come to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll re- begin reading in verse chapter 25. You're familiar with this story in the Sermon on the Mount when the Lord begins to talk about our worry. In, chapter, in verse 25 of Matthew 6, it says, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your faith, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon, all these was what? Arrayed. None of these were arrayed like him. Now if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what we shall eat, what we shall drink, or what we shall wear. All these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What all things? What you shall eat, what you shall drink, and what you shall wear. He makes it simple. God provides for the birds. He provides for the lilies of the field. Will he, caring for them, not much more care for us and provide the necessities that we have in life like he provides the necessities for them? But then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's the contest. We will acknowledge that. We will say, yes, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pause. That's not a come to the assembly passage. That's a passage about discipleship and putting our trust and confidence in him for the daily needs of life. You're not saying seek first the kingdom of God, you miss an assembly, you're... You, you didn't seek first the kingdom of God. It's not about coming to an assembly. It's much broader than that. It's much more encompassing than that. The encompassing thing is, do we and will we put our trust in God to provide for us? And the conversation begins. Well, you better watch that. You better watch that trust in God business. Listen, you may go hungry. You may lose your job. You better be careful about that. Wait a minute. Now we've got a complexity of things. As long as God said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things be added to you, there's not a problem. But then someone comes in and says, you know, I tried that, and I lost my job over that. We went hungry for a month. Seems like I remember another passage somewhere that said, the righteous have never been hungry nor see begging bread, but maybe I missed that one too. Who are we going to believe? And who are we going to put our trust? When Jordan laid out the lesson in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the lesson was this. He made the alignment. Are we going to have greater trust and confidence in the spiritual over the material? Are we going to reap greater rewards from the spiritual than the material? And here the contest is will we put greater confidence in the spiritual over the material? In fact, in the very first of the temptations, when Satan says, turn these stones to bread... It's a test about the material or the spiritual. Are we going to put our confidence in the material or the spiritual? And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'm going to put my trust and confidence in the spiritual, not in the material. Matthew chapter 6 is this. In what are we going to have greater confidence? Our riches, 1 Timothy 6. Matthew chapter 6, the things we worry about. Or the spiritual. That's the test. That's the contest. And I would suggest for us, as Jordan tied in his lessons very, very, very eloquently and very powerfully, it's a real test for us today. Because we're material people 
I'm not trying to be cute with another song here. We're material people living in a material world. And which one, gets our, which one is going to get our trust? Let's look at something else. Let's look at our children. I've never noticed that when a child comes into a family, whether by adoption or birth, that the child comes with a return to sender. It's always one way. And also, there, there's nothing that you push a button. There's not one, one thing fits all. There's not one button you push, and this applies to every child. It's, it's different. But when it comes to our children, and who are we going to put our greater trust? You know, I read things like Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24. When he will say, he who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I think the rod there is used by synecdoche, apart from the whole of what discipline involves. He's not saying that the rod is the only thing that is there. It's put for the whole of what discipline involves because the parallelism here is about discipline. But he puts that as part of what the discipline is, the corporal part. In Proverbs chapter 23, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 15. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 15. He says, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice indeed I myself. Yes, by my inmost being will bring me joy when your lips speak right things. In Proverbs chapter 29, Proverbs chapter 29, and verse 15. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself Bring shame to his mother. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it talks about how it's the father's responsibility to raise the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, here's the contest. Who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to God who created us and told us how best to discipline and raise our children? Or are we going to listen to the modern day Psychology that says, let your child throw their oatmeal against the wall because if you don't, you restrain them, it will warp them, it will hurt them somehow, it will hurt their personality, it will destroy them if you restrain them. Who are we going to listen to? Are we going to put our greater trust in the Lord who tells us how we can go about raising and teaching and training our children to discipline them as the need requires? Are we going to let them be without restraint? In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 15, he says to do so is to bring shame to himself and to bring destruction. The path of destruction for our children is no restraint, no discipline, no correction, no instruction. Whether it's corporal or otherwise. And here the Lord says, here's how I'm telling you to do this. And who are you going to put your trust in confidence? The Lord doesn't offer anything here for, for abuse. That, that's an abuse of what... The role of a parent is. 
And none of this is he speaking about abuse. And all this he's speaking about, you have the restraints that a child needs to teach that child the path the child should walk. Now, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the moderns of today that said, don't restrain the child, let them have whatever they want in any way they want, express themselves however they want, respectful or not, let them do that because if you don't, you're going to warp them. Or are we going to listen to God? When God's the parent of Israel... How does God handle Israel? Does God just let Israel go, okay, hey, follow your rebellious ways out here. You pursue your idols. You pursue all you want to with your idols out here. You go ahead. Hey, I don't want to stop you. I don't want to warp you as a nation. You go ahead. I'm not going to interfere with you. You, you have what you want. Is that what he does with Israel when he's the parent? No. What does he tell them? Look, he says, look, you cross the line. You're going, you're going into captivity, and you're going to be there for 70 years. Pack your bags, pack your house. This isn't going to be an overnight trip. You're going to be there for 70 years, and it's going to be hard for you because you are an idolatrous people. I am giving you up. No, God imposed his word on them when he gave his word. Who are we going to believe? And who are we going to put our trust? And then, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 6, we find a statement like this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. We will command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw yourselves from every brother who walks disorderly, not according to the tradition which he received from us. We command you to withdraw yourself from every brother who walks disorderly. Here is a clear commandment by the Lord. But then someone says, but you better watch that. You might run them off. Time out. They're already off. It's not we're going to run them off. We're trying to restore them because they are off. They're not walking according to the tradition of the commandments. That's the latter part of the passage. Well, it won't work. I've seen it. I've, I've seen it tried. It won't work. Well, sometimes it doesn't work because we don't work. Sometimes it doesn't work because we don't do it. So when we say, okay, you better watch it. You're going to run them off or it won't work. I've seen it, but it doesn't work. Here's the question. Who are we going to put our trust? Here's something happens in a church. Some scandalous thing that happens like in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You have this man who's this scandalous thing. This man is with his father's wife. And the Corinthians have not mourned about it. They're puffed up about it. I don't know if they're saying, hey, it won't work. I'm not saying, hey, we'll, afraid, we'll, afraid, we'll, we'll run him off. I don't know what they're saying. They're just puffed up about it. So the Lord says, I want each of you to separate yourselves from that one. Those that are within, you separate yourselves from. Those that are without, I will take care of. And that separation happens as each one of us separate ourselves from that one that is walking disorderly. Now, who are we going to believe? Who are we going to put our trust as a church? Who are we going to put our trust as God's people? Who are we going to put our trust? Are we going to listen to what God says? Or what someone says about it's not working, I've seen it, tried it, or you may run them off. How are we going to restore them? Are we going to restore them believing God and trusting what God said? Seems like I hear somewhere along the line there, wait a minute. 
There's another option over here, Satan said. Wait a minute. What am I supposed to do with that rock? Seems like those things kind of filter back in there somewhere. Another thing. And that is salvation. Look at Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. Yeah, this statement that seems very clear. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Someone comes along and says, yeah, but baptism is not necessary for salvation. Here it is. You're saved and then you're baptized as a show of your faith. And so baptism is not essential for salvation. Listen, baptism is not the problem here. Baptism, the question of baptism is not the problem. The problem is before that. Who are we going to believe? Because he said, he that believeth and is baptized. Once we settle who we're going to believe, then baptism answers itself. Well, why do you say who believes not and is not baptized will be condemned? Because if you don't believe... Baptism doesn't matter. Baptism is not a question if you don't believe. I've never had a discussion, never heard anybody having a discussion with someone. Who, when they realized what lost was and how lost they were, understood who Jesus was and the price that he offered and price that he paid and the great love that God demonstrated in the giving of his son would argue about baptism because they believed. But we have two voices. One voice says, baptism, baptism not necessary. The other says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. In who are we going to put our trust? That's the question. You should not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat, you will not die. In who are we going to put our trust? Thou shalt have no other graven images. Let's make a calf. In who are we going to put our trust? Speak Smite, in who are we going to put our trust? Paul preached repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. In who are we going to put our trust? That's the taproot of it all. That's where it begins for us. It's a matter of putting our confidence and trust in God. When God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees to leave his homeland, that was an idolatrous land. And why God chose Abraham over everybody else, I don't know. I just know that he did. God, God chose Abraham to come from the homeland. Leave Ur and come. And I'll take you to a land. I'll show you a land. I'll give you a home and a land. But he doesn't know where the land's at and what the land's going to be like and what the people are going to be like. And Abraham leaves. And when Terah dies, he begins to make his trek toward that land. He leaves the land. He leaves his family. He leaves everything behind because God said, go and I'll show you a home. He doesn't know where the home is going to be. He's never seen the land. He doesn't know. But he knows this. He believed God and it was put to his count for righteousness. But that's not the biggest test. That's preliminary. That's preparatory. Because also God promised Abraham this. If you leave and go to the land, I also make you a great nation, and many, blessed, many nations shall be blessed because of your heir. 
as you know, there's just one problem. There's no air. Sarah offers a solution. Abraham offers a solution. Neither one of the solution. Here's the problem. Abraham, I mean, Sarah is past childbearing and her womb is now dried up. She's not able to produce children. And evidently with Abraham, from Romans chapter 4, he considered himself dead in the flesh. The ability to produce children has passed their, their child productive bearing years. And God, you're telling me that they're going to be a great nation and people are going to be blessed by my heir and there's no heir. And then lo and behold, an heir is born. Late in Abraham's life. When Abraham hears about it, he laughs. When Sarah hears about it, she laughs. And finally, Isaac is born, the one that's going to be the heir. You talk about the chosen. He is the chosen. And then somewhere it's guesstimated in the area of 18 years old, maybe 20, God tells Abraham, you go to the mountain. And you offer him on the altar. And it says the next day they went. Abraham didn't argue with God. Leave the servant behind. Abraham and Isaac climb the mountain. They take the wood with them. The altar is set. Isaac's perceptive. He says, hey, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide. And Isaac is laid on the altar. And Abraham raises his hand to kill that heir. And the Lord stops it and offers this. Now I know. Now you have demonstrated, beyond any question of a doubt, that you believe. What was this man thinking? You know, the Hebrew writer tells us. If God can give him to me when we're past the child productive years, if he can give this heir to me when we can't produce a child, because both of us are dead in the flesh, and yet he gives us this child? Is it too much then for God to raise this son from the dead? But resurrection has never been spoken of before. You know, for me and you to talk about resurrection, I'm not diminishing this compared to Abraham. That's twiddly did, twiddly dumb. Because we, we talk about resurrection all the time. We have a resurrected Lord. We've seen Lazarus resurrected in Scripture. There's no resurrection here. And yet he believed that God would raise him from the dead. Believe facts about God? Yes. Believe there is a God? Yes. Believed God. He believed in God. Why is Abraham called the father of the faithful? Because of his faith. That's the taproot of it all. That's the most fundamental thing for us, folks. As God's people, it is the test of in who are we going to put, in whom are we going to put our trust. 
and the challenges before us every day. It's not in a moment of time. It's before us every day. You know, we can look at all creation and grand as, as it is. We can, be, we can marvel at the mighty hand of God. We can marvel at his, at his design. We can marvel at his power. We can marvel at his intelligence. We can marvel at his wisdom. And that is indeed what creation is intended to do. Creation is intended to say, wow, there's a God. God created this. But we can't know about his nature and his character. And we can't know how to please him until we hear this. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Because it's the word of God that gives a testimony that's going to produce that faith that enables us to believe not there is a God, not believe facts about a God, but to believe God because we hear stories like Abraham. We don't want a weak faith. We don't want a shipwreck faith. We want a strong faith that produces a strong life. And we want a faith that with all the choices before us, all options available, we choose, we choose fundamentally to put our trust in God. And so he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Is that your conviction this morning? Then won't you come while we stand and while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.